When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The more my company grows, the harder it is to stay focused on our core product. I need to master DE&I, ESG, M&A, even how to adapt to hybrid working. The more hats I wear, the more I need Aon. They bring their whole team to the table and give me access to great minds in each discipline. So as my business grows, my knowledge expands and I see things more clearly. Better decisions. Aon. Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths they are linked to. Hello there, once again, Matt Harris, Seton Tucker, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com. We welcome your words of advice, and we try to get better every single time. We're grateful that you are here. We want to tell you why we decided to have this guest. Yeah, so one of my ideas, there's not really a ton of stuff that's going on right now with the Murdochs. So one thing that I really thought was interesting was a conversation with a coroner. We've mm-hmm. we've heard a lot of different coroners involved with the Stephen Smith case, with, you know, the deaths of Magger, Maggie and Paul, Satterfield. So we just thought it would be a good time to kind of do a Q&A with a coroner. And she's from South Carolina, so... A lot of the laws and rules apply to those coroners who have dealt with the Murdoch case. Yeah, and we actually learn, I think, rules for coroners vary state to state. So yes. speaking to someone who is local in South Carolina was definitely important. Yep. We're uh, pleased and happy that uh, Sabrina Gass could join us, the York County, South Carolina coroner since 2006, background as a forensic nurse. Sabrina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Can you just tell us what a coroner is? Well, in South Carolina, a coroner is a constitutional office. So it's in the state constitution that every county must have a coroner. So there's 46 of us in the state, one for every county. And their primary job is to do death investigations within their jurisdiction. And what are the qualifications to become a coroner? Well, that, that varies. Here in South Carolina, you actually have to have some sort of death investigation experience or a degree in medicine or a nurse or some sort of investigative background. Um, when I first became a coroner in 2006, the only educational requirement was to have a high school diploma, which was kind of scary. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? Wow. That's, a, that's crazy. It's, it's an elected position? It is an elected position, Yes. Explain this, because I know it's kind of come up. We have a medical examiner. I guess that's the person who conducts the autopsy and a coroner. Is that really the main difference, or can you tell us what the difference between those two 
positions are? Sure. So usually uh, a medical examiner is hired by the county that they serve. And usually they are physicians, so they actually conduct the autopsies. North Carolina is a medical examiner state, so they have medical examiners in the larger areas of North Carolina. But some in the, in the smaller counties, they may have a medical examiner that is a medical professional, like a paramedic or a nurse that will do the actual on-scene investigation and then refer the, the case to a medical examiner county like Mecklenburg to have the autopsies done. So that's the major difference between medical examiners and coroners. Medical examiners are actually hired by their county and coroners are elected. So does a coroner go to crime scenes? Yes. So who makes the decision that this is one where a coroner needs to be? So if there's a death, the coroner is there. So if it's a homicide, the coroner goes. If it's a suicide, the coroner goes. If it's an accident, the coroner goes. If it is a death at home and hospice is not involved, the coroner goes. The coroner is the, is the, the lead investigator into the death investigation. So they go wherever the person has died, wherever that person may be. Well, so what do you do if there's multiple deaths at the same time? I have multiple staff members that work with me, and that does happen a lot. Does the death have to be suspicious or anything, or it doesn't matter? Just that there's a death, the coroner goes. So usually we just go to suspicious deaths or deaths that are not atten- what they classify in the statute is attended by a physician, which means you know they died at home or they died out in their shop or while they're out on the lawnmower or something like that. We do not usually go to nursing home deaths or deaths in a hospital, like if they've been admitted for more than 24 hours. We can go to those if there's something unusual or suspicious um, or something that we need to be involved in, we can go to those. We have the authority to do any death investigation, but we typically don't go to hospice deaths or nursing home deaths or deaths that occur in the hospital. Okay, so when a death does occur, how does the coroner go about securing the crime scene? Usually your coroner is not going to be the person that secures the crime scene. Um, your coroner is usually going to be the, I like to kind of say that we're the last of the first responders. We're almost always going to be the last person on scene because when that 911 call comes in, they're going to send a paramedic, they're going to send law enforcement, they may send fire, whatever the scenario may be. And those medical professionals have determined that that person is now deceased. And then the coroner is contacted to respond to that location. So usually law enforcement is already on scene. And if it's something that they feel like is a a crime, if it's a crime scene that needs to be secured, law enforcement has already done that prior to our arrival. And when you arrive on scene, I mean, obviously depends on what happened there, but in general, you do what? Are you taking pictures or is that somebody else who does that? Are you looking at the body for, uh, you know, evidence or body temperature? What, what are you doing? 
the responsibility for the coroner when they get on scene, usually how that goes is I will usually contact, you know, the, the EMS personnel if they're still there or the law enforcement officer that's there because, like I said, they've been there. They, they have a little bit of information as far as what's going on by the time we get there. So I'll always talk to them first to see what's going on and what we need to do from there. So if it, if it is a crime scene, we work with law enforcement. So I kind of think of it as a parallel investigation. So law enforcement and the coroner work together. It's it's the same sort of type of investigation, but law enforcement is there to determine if there's a crime that has occurred and if so, who did it. And the coroner's job is to determine how and why that person has died. So we gather a lot of the same information and we need a lot of the same information So we work alongside of each other. So if it's a crime scene here in York County, how we work that is we let law enforcement secures the crime scene. They go in first and they'll do um, a a scene inventory or a scene assessment and do photographs. And then they they come back out of the crime scene. They update the other law enforcement agency partners that may be there, the coroner's office. And then we kind of make a plan as to how we're going to enter that crime scene. And we do that together. So their job is to do the crime scene as a whole. My responsibility is that decedent, the person itself. Um, We will talk to witnesses. We do our own photographs. We collect personal property that may be associated with that decedent. Um, Once in a while, we will also take evidence, depending on what the case is and what, what all is involved with that. But usually evidence is collected by law enforcement. We are responsible for... While we're on scene, we're we're gathering the information. We're going to assess that body. So we actually put hands on the body. So we're feeling for injuries, looking for injuries, um, documenting those injuries. And then we actually decide when we're on scene whether that body can be released to a funeral home or whether it needs to go to our holding facility for autopsy and toxicology testing. So we make that decision right on scene most of the time. Who determines time of death? So time of death is a little tricky. It's not like it is on CSI. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, The only true time of death that can be documented is if somebody is standing over you when you take your last breath. Right. Otherwise, we narrow it down to a time frame. And usually the time frame is between when the last person that saw you and you were alive and okay. And when the first person found you and you were dead and then we narrow it down in between those two time points. So sometimes we may not get an exact time of death. We can only have a time range and depending on the condition that we find the body, we can narrow that time range a lot of times. So it just kind of depends. Let's assume that somebody didn't see him for eight hours or something. I would imagine it's hard to narrow it down to like a 10 minute window. Is it normally a few hours or every 30 minutes or like, or is that tough to say? Usually we can get it within a couple of hours um, just based on, you know, how we find the body, where we find the body, what condition the body is in. Cause there's things that we look like, look for, like we look to see what the temperature of the body is. We look to see what stage of rigor mortis the body is in. We'll look to see what liver pattern they may have. And 
based on scientific knowledge of when those things occur, we gauge a time frame based on that information along with who last saw the person and who found them. We'll also sometimes use um, telephones um, so we can tell when the last phone call was made or when the last text message was sent. Oh, yeah. If somebody has a pacemaker, that's helpful too because we can run the information off of the pacemaker and we can see where um, you know, when, when the electrical activity actually stopped. So we can use those things as well. You're the coroner, you go out there and you say, you know, the funeral home can have the body, but there's, I don't know, family member there or somebody says, no, 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 I want an autopsy. What happens then? It really does depend on the circumstances. So, um, families can request an autopsy. Um, and then we base that, whether we're going to do that autopsy based on whether it's forensically indicated or not. Um, it's based on how we find the person, what the circumstances are. Um, is there anything unusual or suspicious that we that may that an autopsy may help us? Um, autopsies, again, are not like they are on CSI. You do not always get an answer. Right. Um, so it doesn't, you know, a lot of times an autopsy is going to give us what we already know. We may know that they have coronary artery disease. We may know that they have cirrhosis of the liver. We may know that they have chronic kidney failure due to diabetes. So those are things that we'll see on autopsy sometimes. And then sometimes we get lucky and we'll see traumatic um, injuries on autopsies, or we can see that they've had a sudden brain aneurysm that caused them to collapse, or we can see that they've had a heart attack. So there's actually a thrombus there that has caused them to collapse. But it doesn't always work that way. So it, it really does depend on what the scenario is. Usually what I ask the family is, why do you want an autopsy? Because most family members really don't understand what an autopsy can give you. So usually once you explain to them why it's not necessary, they're okay with that. Um, if they're not okay with that, then they can always request a private autopsy, which is something that they, as the family member, would make the arrangements for and pay for for a private autopsy. And we have telephone numbers that we can assist them with and kind of guide them as to who they can contact to make that possible. Obviously, if there's deaths and family members come, how do you deal with family members and when are they allowed to enter the crime scene? Family members are never allowed to enter a crime scene until the crime scene has been cleared. Usually if it's a crime, if it's if it's a homicide, families are not going to get to see that person until we have conducted an autopsy and we've released them to the funeral home. Anytime anybody crosses that yellow line, you're not only taking possible evidence in with you, but you're also removing evidence possibly when you cross that yellow line again. So that's why we, that's what securing the crime scene means is that you're not letting people that don't belong there in that crime scene. If it's not a crime scene and the person is viewable, then most of the time we will make arrangements for the family to see that individual before they leave, either with my transport going for autopsy or with a funeral home. We'll uh, allow the family to view them then. And if it is thought to be a homicide, how long do these investigations typically take? It really does depend. I always say that the easiest case for a coroner to work is a gunshot case. We know why they're dead. 
we know that it's more than likely, you know, in the incidents of a crime scene, we know that somebody shot them and they've, they've been shot and where that injury is and that they have died from that gunshot wound. So for coroners, gunshot wounds are easy cases to work. The more difficult cases for a coroner is, let's say you have neglect cases. You have a little old person that's being cared for by, or supposedly being cared for by a family, and they have a lot of medical issues going on, and they haven't been properly cared for, and now they're septic, or they're, they have, um, a, a raging infection due to the ulcers because they weren't cared for. That kind of investigation for a coroner is a lot more in depth and in detail versus your your homicide, which is what everybody sees on TV. Do they always get, is a tox screen always basically done when there's any kind of uh, accidental or suspicious death? So if there's an autopsy that's conducted, there should always be a toxicology. Um, and sometimes we'll do toxicology without an autopsy. It just kind of depends on what that scenario looks like. Like, for instance, we had a case that came across my desk um, this morning. It's probably going to be a neglect case. He had been in the hospital. They had they had gotten him out of the home and he'd been in the hospital, but they had his admission blood. And the the family, the the person that was bringing the allegations were, were kept saying, well, they weren't giving him his medicines. They weren't giving him his medicines. So in order to either confirm that or to or, or see, you know, see what's going on. Sending that toxicology will tell me whether that caregiver was giving them the medications that they were supposed to be given or not. Um, so it really does kind of depend on the scenario that you have. Um, toxicology is expensive. So you have to know, you know, kind of what it is that you're looking for. Um, oh. You don't want to ask for a needle in a haystack because your toxicology costs will go through the roof. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So we're, we're having a lot of issues with uh, drug overdoses. We're having a fentanyl war. Um, so we have a lot of illicit fentanyl on the street and they're, they're different types of fentanyl. So you have to kind of know what you're looking for if you want something additional added on to that toxicology because not every lab looks for everything. So you kind of have to, you have to guide them as to what you're looking for based on what you see on scene. Wow. I did not know that. We talked about, uh, you take pictures sometimes. Is it like TV? Do you have that big giant flashbulb <laughs> that goes off? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you, Matt had written as one of the questions he had was, yeah. do you cringe when you see uh, portrayals of coroners on TV? Yes. <laughs> What's the biggest misconception that if people only knew about coroners from television shows and movies, what's the one thing that you wish that they would understand is not true? Um, we don't just pick up the dead bodies. We do the entire death investigation. You know, a lot of the television shows just see, you see the coroner walk in with the stretcher and they've got this big coat on that says coroner on the back and you see them pick up the body, put them on the stretcher, put them in the van and off they go. Coroners are actually involved in detail in doing that, that entire death investigation. So from on the scene, interviewing people, ordering and requesting the autopsy, um, looking at the autopsy results, looking at the toxicology results, 
pining through the stacks of medical records that we have to go through. Um, you may have multiple interviews from witnesses or families that you have to do. There's a lot of work that goes into a death investigation that is definitely not portrayed on television. Although, do you get the coat that says coroner? <laughs> um, no. So what? County. I like to fly low and under the radar because we're the <laughs> actually knocking on the doors to tell people that their loved one's not coming home. That's not law enforcement. That's the coroner's office. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to pull the, our cars do not have insignia on them. Our uniforms do not have insignia on them because I don't ever want a family to know why I'm there before I have the opportunity to con- kind of control how that information comes out. If they see coroner across my shirt, they're going to know why I'm there. Um, so we don't, here in York County, we, do, we don't do that. I know there's some coroner's offices around the state that do have coroner, you know, on their shirts and stuff, but that's not how I do things here. What's amazing to me is after you tell us all the stuff that the coroner does, you're telling me prior to whatever it was, 06 or something, the person didn't have to have any medical background. No. That's crazy. Well, does it ever get easier, though? Like, I mean, I know it's got to be a really difficult job to have to tell loved ones that their family member has died. Does that ever get easier? Um, No. Um, For me, that is the worst part of my job. And every time I pull into somebody's driveway, I am physically nauseous. Because I know that when I knock on that door and I deliver this news, I have just changed that family's life forever. And there's nothing I can do about it. There is not an easy way to do that. And in my mind, if I ever get to the point of where that doesn't bother me, it's time for me to get out. It's time for me to leave what I'm doing. Because these families have suffered a tragic loss. And I feel like I owe it to them to be present with them when I do that information and give them that information. Because there's often times that I'll, I will cry with families. I mean, it is, it is heart-wrenching to go to some of these families and tell them that their child is killed in a car accident or, you know, their husband collapsed at work. I mean, you're altering that family's life forever. Um, and, you know, we have to be in tune to that um, and try to do it in the most professional, non-judgmental, because you never know what you're going to get when that door opens. Families have different coping mechanisms and coping styles. So you never know, you know, what that family is like before you get, get kind of, before you get your foot in the door. So I feel like, you know, if I ever get to the point of where it doesn't bother me to do that notification, then it's time for me to go. Do you ever have a weird one where weird one where you, you knock on the door and you tell them and they're like, yeah, I know because I killed him. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but we do get a lot of information from families. You know, we had a case, um, it's been, it's been years ago. It was a traffic fatality and myself and highway patrol went out to notify the family and, you know, and she opened the door and she sees the trooper standing behind me. And, and she's like, I told him he didn't need to be driving tonight. He needed to call me when he left the bar. Is he, what jail is he in? So from that information, yeah. we knew immediately that she knew what bar he was going to. This yeah. is not a unusual act for him. This is something that, that he does frequently. Um, you know, and then we just, we just kind of had to, to slowly get her to the part of where, he wasn't coming home this time. Um, so that is, you get a lot of information from families when that first, 
when that first information is relayed. Um, and you can get a pretty good um, vibe on the family dynamics that are going on within that family as well. Does law enforcement accompany you or do you go with a coworker? Not always. If it's a traffic fatality where highway patrol is involved, they always go. They have a protocol that they have in place and they always they always want to go with us. They never really want to say the words, but they want to be there when we when we say the words. Um Mm. Other other times we go without law enforcement. It just really co- does kind of depend on what the scenario is. Um, my folks all carry. We are all um, we're qualified to carry um, because, you know, you're knocking on people's doors at two o'clock in the morning sometimes. And sometimes yeah. you're there by yourself. Um, now, if we're going into a um, a questionable area of the county, a lot of times we'll ask for law enforcement backup, you know, hey, can you go out here with me while I do this death notification or whatever that may be. Um, But a lot of times we're going out by ourselves when we do that. Sabrina, thank you. This has been uh, great, very informative. Again, Sabrina Gass, the York County coroner for 15 plus years now. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, It's been great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. Okay, Seton, your thoughts, takeaways, et cetera, from that interview, which was great. And so one thing that really stuck out to me was the time of death of Maggie and Paul being so narrow. Yes. They only give us a 30-minute window, 9 to 9.30. Alex called said a minute ago. It was 10.07, I believe. Now, when she mentions the phone call and text as a way to help narrow down the time of death. For some reason, I hadn't put that together as a possibility. So it's very possible they were on the phone or texted or something at 8.59. Right, and that would say that they were still alive at that point. So we can still sit at the corner and go, okay, time of death is 9. But why does it stop at 9.30? When Alex calls, let's say Alex pulls in at, 10. He doesn't call for seven minutes for whatever reason. So let's say there's, why is it stop at 9.30 and not go all the way to 10? Is there some reason that it exactly, they've nailed it down to exactly 9.30 or is there some sort of phone record or phone call that happens at 9.30 to indicate they are dead? That is what we've been intrigued about throughout this thing, but it really jumps out a lot more after you talk to a South Carolina coroner who seems to, and we weren't talking about this specific case in any way stretch of imagination, so obviously there's different factors. But the South Carolina coroner points out they use text, phone calls, anything they have, and to, it appears she was saying that to narrow it down to a 30-minute window without the use of uh, phone records, text, et cetera, is, is highly unlikely. Is that fair to say? I think so. I mean, what she said is when they examine a body to establish time of death, they take the temperature, they look at many things, including state of rigor mortis. So to dare it down to such a small window, there would have to be some sort of information they have. There was a 30-minute window left, really, between the time he, because we could say, like, it took him a while to make the call, right? Possibly. He, he, there's the phone, there's the mailbox, remember, there's a mailbox uh, at the beginning of the, of the drive. We've been down there and seen that. That's where he's probably going in. And he may or may not see them. It's dark. Right. Right? 
Maybe he's fiddling in the phone. Maybe he's on the phone. Who knows? He might not get out of the car right away, right? But he did drive. That driveway does go past the dog kennel. Yes, yes. So anyway, it's still a short winter, no matter how you look at it. But now we, it dawns on us that the beginning of the timeline could be based on a phone call or text, not a temperature of the body, not anything like that. It could be just based on that. Yes. Okay. That, that was one thing. Okay, what else uh, jumped out at so you? So the other thing that stuck out when Sabrina said family members are never allowed to enter a crime scene until it's been cleared. So, um, for example, we had Riley Benson on last week. He was great. He talked about seeing family members that morning when he was there covering the crime scene. Mm-hmm. If law enforcement... We assume they're following procedures correctly. That would mean that the crime scene had already been cleared. That's what we'd have to find out how quickly a crime scene, a, a double homicide, can be cleared. Uh, we're talking probably about 12 hours, somewhere in that window, of when the bodies were found. Maybe a little less. And we know SLED was on the scene, so... You know, I'm really anxious to get more information from SLED to see exactly how yeah. how that went down. Uh, well, yes. And you would assume that the murder scene, okay, that's what's cleared, would, it, it would consist of the entryway into the place as well, right? So they could say, well, the murder scene is where the bodies are. So we let John the Marvin into this part or whatever, right? It's still stunning that we are now going on however many months, almost coming up on 11 months, 10 months, and there has not been any statements uh, from SLED or Collinson County or federal investigators or anybody. From all the reporters we've talked to in this case, and also Jay Bender, I mean, SLED has a history of being pretty tight-lipped. Yes, that is true. That is true. And uh, the interesting thing also, a side note to all this, is within the last you know week, 10 days or whatever, we've had multiple people tell us that things were going to happen. Big things coming. But what, 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 what does that mean? And, and, and like really, really uh, highly credible reporters have said something's going to happen soon. And it's been two weeks or whatever since we heard that. Remember that one thing I'm talking about? You know what yeah. I'm talking about. I don't want to rat people out. But... I just don't know. It's, it's very, very odd to me that there hasn't been anything. But, you know, as I said, as John Snyder, our, our legal analyst, has said, when you're dealing with a high-profile murder, these guys tend to want to make sure they get everything right. They don't want to blow it. They don't want to arrest somebody that's not as innocent or whatever. So anyway. John um, says, yeah, you get one chance. Right. Exactly. And so, again, thanks to uh, Sabrina, uh, the, the coroner of York County, South Carolina. And we want to talk about an episode that we did about the Calvert case, the missing couple that disappeared from Hilton Head in 2008. The man, authorities believe, was responsible for the disappearance of the Calverts and the murder of the Calverts. Dennis Gerwing died from suicide. And you can hear all the details in episode 42. Check that out. But there's some questions that some people brought up. One from Mark. Who was Dennis talking to when he went into the CVS? That's when he went in to get the gloves and band-aids. What? We, we don't know, right? I didn't see that. 
No, we don't know. It, we know he was talking on the phone. That was caught on a video camera, but we don't know who he was talking to. That information has not been released, so we would think that cell phone records have been analyzed, but that information has not come out that I've seen. And he took his Yukon into the repair shop, uh, but maybe he took it to be detailed, someone asked. And we think that maybe something like that happened because it was really clean. Yeah, they, they found nothing, no yeah. forensic evidence whatsoever in any of the vehicles that were searched. Where did the Calvert money go? Well, the total, we believe, from all the people that Dennis Gerwing mishandled money, stole money, was a little over $2 million. Yeah, and the, the suicide note was odd. I mean, he they asked where the money went, and he said it was gone. So there's not a lot of information, and that's kind of the same questions that we do have in the Murdoch case. Right. Now, the people who were ripped off, most of them are, are made whole or about to be made whole by Dennis's business partner. Yes, King, I think, made everyone whole. Yes. Somebody asked if, if Corey Fleming made money off the case. He didn't do a lot. I don't know. I don't know if he made any money. We All we know is that he, at one point, tells Dennis Gerwig not to talk to authorities. Right. I think he was brought in very shortly before his death, so I, I don't know how much he actually had contact or how much work he had done. I don't know if he received any money, but I would think that there were a lot of other people that were missing money. So maybe an hour or two of legal work, probably, he probably let that go. But again, we don't really, we're just guessing at that point. If the Calverts turned their phones off at 530, I think it was like 540 or something, but didn't meet Dennis until six, maybe they didn't really ever make it to meet Dennis. Is there any evidence that they really ever met him where the meeting was scheduled? That's a really good question. Because we don't know. I mean, I wondered why they would have turned their phone off. I mean, you would put your phone on silent, but turning your phone off is a different situation. Now, Dennis says he met them. He says he met them, but there's no evidence of that. He says he met them in his office. We knew that that meeting was scheduled to happen because, because Liz told people that she was supposed to meet him that afternoon. So we know that the meeting was scheduled, but whether they actually made it to that meeting or not... We know that John arrived around 6, Liz at 6.15, both left at 6.30, according to Dennis, somewhere around 6.30. Uh, off the top of my head, I forget exactly when they did. But in other words, still not a very long meeting. No, it seemed very quick. And according to Dennis saying after 15 minutes that Liz said that they needed to go, I mean, 15 minutes, I guess, according to Dennis. It's all according to Dennis. John was there 15 minutes before Liz, but then after 15 minutes after the meeting, Liz said it was she needed to go. So that would be a very short meeting. This person says maybe John was told the meeting was one place, Liz was told another, so they drove their cars to the places where the cars were found, and that is why there's no fingerprints, DNA, etc. I don't huh. know. I mean, I think that the the... I think the meeting was on. I think the meeting was scheduled to be at Seapine Center. I do... I. I mean, I think that that was, because that's where their offices were. Uh, he says, uh, in another comment, thank you again. We continue to put the heat on the South Carolina judicial system. I know that we will never know the complete truth, but I sure hope this type of evil is harder to exist because of reporting like this and researching. And, oh, we want to mention one more thing yeah. about the Calverts, the connection. Yeah, so Duffy Stone, we forgot to mention this in the episode, Duffy Stone actually had a connection to Dennis. He was a, a reportedly a friend of his, but also he, did he identify the body? He was he was flanked by investigators when Gerwing's body was placed on a gurney about 7 p.m. and taken away. 
And he said he was there to offer legal advice, but he was also, so he's also a solicitor and he's also was a friend yeah. of Dennis Gerwing's. Let's just describe quickly who Duffy Stone is. Mm-hmm. He is the 14th Circuit solicitor. He replaced Randolph as solicitor after he retired. Alex dad. Alex dad. Yep. And was also reportedly, Alec worked with him as a volunteer solicitor for the 14th Circuit. So that's a wrap on that. If you want us to talk to any other experts, because we've had a money laundering expert on. We had someone who talked about journalism, the Freedom of Information Act. We've also had on a forensic accountant and today a coroner, a legal analyst we've had on. Any ideas, get them to us. And how do they do that? Yes, you can reach out to us at MurdochPodcast.com. Or the Murdoch Podcast Facebook page. And I am Matt Harris. She's Seton Tucker. We'll talk soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me, Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. 